Good afternoon, Spark. We are so excited that we are together and have this opportunity to continue worshiping as we study God's Word and proceed in our study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, today, our title of our message is Debts Forgiven, and it comes from the passage of Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, uh, the story of the woman anointing Jesus with oil. So let's jump on in, shall we? One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Let's just stop right there. What kind of table are we talking about? A pottery barn table, a really nice Williams-Sonoma piece? Well, no, in the first century um, and during this period in the Greco-Roman world, people sat and ate at triclinians, oftentimes at three-sided tri-reclining table um, where food and items would be placed in a common table and common bowls in the middle and people would recline on in, uh, feet stretched out behind them and enjoy a long luxurious meal. This was known in the Greco-Roman periods. We have mosaics that depict this and other um, findings from the archaeological time in both in Israel and also in the rest of the Greco-Roman world at that time. Um, so here we have just the setting of the story of Luke in the Gospel uh, in chapter 7, is that this is Jesus eating at the home of a Pharisee, and he's taking his place at their table. So I just want to note that while we have other stories and other Gospels of women anointing Jesus with oil, this particular story doesn't have anything to do with anointing him for burial, as it does in some of the other Gospels. Um, some of the other Gospels complain that the woman has used too much money um, on this oil, that it could have been used for the poor. This Gospel story in Luke does not talk about that. Um, so there's no complaints about the cost of ointment here. Um, and in Luke's narrative, uh, we don't know the name of the woman. Um, in others, the woman is given the name Mary Magdalene or Mary the sister of Martha, but here we don't know her name. And for Luke in particular, this entire scene is going to be about hospitality, dining habits, judgment, repentance, and forgiveness. So just to give you a couple sort of like things to pay attention to, some shelves to build on as we move through. We're looking at dining habits, women, Pharisees, repentance, forgiveness, um, hospitality. Okay, so as you've looked at these then, these three-sided tables, you've imagined where Jesus might be, um, let's talk a little bit about the power of table fellowship for a few moments. Um, in the ancient Near East and also in Israel customs of this day in first century Judaism, um, as well as ancient Israelite practice, table fellowship is a significant um, way in which community is brought and a way in which people engage with one another and also engage with God. Table fellowship happens within the tabernacle, within the temple. We see our first sort of hints of hospitality back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 when he welcomes the three visitors. So hospitality, welcoming table fellowship, um, as of course we also push into the the Lord's Supper later on in our service every single Sunday, these things, this communion type atmosphere is deeply important. Who you ate with spoke to who your community was, who you would approve of, who you would welcome around that table, who was clean, who had clean hands, who maybe was not clean or not welcomed at that table. And there was an um, equality almost um, given to those who were brought into the same tables and spaces. Uh, this is true still today. You know, who you invite in your home, even, you know, 
post COVID days, pre COVID days, who gets to sit at your table, who gets to sit and eat with you is deeply important. And we know that at Spark, when we have our communal meals, um, when we have hospitality every single weekend, um, when we're all together, that sitting and sharing a meal together and that space creates intimacy and connection and family. And the same was true in Jesus's day, um, just as it is today. Um, for those of you who may know um, the head of the Episcopal Church here in America, um, Bishop Michael B. Curry, um, he was, he's the first African-American leader of the Episcopalian Church. And a lot of us maybe really got to know him when Meghan Markle invited him, Markle. I'm not very good at the royals, when <laughs> the royals got married to Prince Harry, and um, she invited him to come and preach at their wedding, and he stole the show. Well, in an interview, um, he explains how his family moved from the Baptist traditions and practices that his father had been part of and the Episcopalian practice that his mother was part of. And so he talks about how, you know, your father became an Episcopal priest in this interview he has with the New York Times. But before that, he was a Baptist. Why did he become an Episcopalian? And Bishop Curry explains that his father was dating his mother and who was an Episcopalian, and they went to church together at some point. And when it came time for communion, the Episcopal Church, people drink out of the same cup. And they were the only black, like one of the only black couples sitting in the congregation. And this was in the late 40s in southern Ohio, so still pretty much south. Um, and watching that, his father said it hit him that in this church, that where there was any church where people of different races could drink from the same cup, then that church knew something about the gospel and he wanted to be part of that and became part of that church and that tradition because of the table fellowship, like quite literally because of the way they welcomed everyone to the Lord's Supper and because they drank from the same cup. Any church that would allow in the 1940s blacks and whites together to sit um, and partake together meant that the table fellowship like sort of ushered in the truth of the gospel for Bishop Curry's father. Now, he admits in many interviews that, of course, that did not indicate that the Episcopal Church had it all together or that there weren't massive amounts of institutional racism that still needed to be tackled. But that moment, that taste of the table fellowship and everyone coming around the Lord's table was enough to move his father into um, this other tradition of Christianity. So table fellowship continues to be deeply meaningful today. And honestly, when at Spark every single Sunday when we say all are welcome at this table, and we really mean that, all are welcome at this table. It is because of our deep belief of how table fellowship works in the ancient world in Jesus' time and today as well. Okay, so that's the setting, um, and that's what's happening here for Jesus and this moment in the Gospel of Luke. So let's proceed in our story. A woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that Jesus was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. Okay, so she enters this, the Pharisee's home. She's known as a sinner. Now, immediately, commentators might be quick to, to judge or point out, like, oh, definitely she was a prostitute or she was known for these other things. But it's actually not known in our text what her challenge was. Uh, Peter is called as sinner earlier in the gospel, and nobody identifies him with prostitution. Um, in fact, the only time Luke ever men mentions prostitutes is in the parable of the um, lost things, um, lost 
lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons, for the par- what's often called the parable of the prodigal son. Um, and in there still, it's only the older brother who accuses the prodigal in his imagination of devouring his father's property with prostitutes. Um, so prostitutes in Luke exist only in the imagination of the older brother and if they exist in the, the eyes or the hearts of the reader of the gospel. But here there's nothing to indicate what her sin is. Um, it is just known in the area that she is a sinner. Now she comes into this, mo- into this room while everyone is eating and brings this alabaster jar of ointment. Um, the word here for the ointment is myrrh, but it can also just sort of indicate a larger, broader term for perfume or ointment. In um, Israel today, when you come with us, God willing, someday we'll all be back there together and we'll walk down the markets, um, the open air markets in Jerusalem and, and in other cities throughout Israel. And you will smell and see the most fragrant, bright, vibrant spices um, lining the kiosks, um, just beautiful, amazing spices. And just like 2000 years ago and today, these spices are sought after known ointments, myrrh, um, spikenard, um, all sorts of frankincense, all of these different types of um, balsam spice that can be brought and are mentioned in various parts of our Bible. They're mentioned, they're expensive, they're brought from plants or from trunks of trees or or from different seeds. Um, They're used for incense at the altar, they're used for um, bathing or preparations. Esther uses them um, for six months prior to her encounter with the king um, in the Song of Songs, uh, different ointments and, and perfumes are mentioned in spices. They're part of the gifts of the Magi, of course. And um, in the Gospel of John, myrrh anticipates Jesus' burial. Whether it is myrrh or spikenard, as it is located um, for other anointing stories, the spikenard oil, um, it would be fragrant, right? You have all of the normal smells of of a, of a meal. You've got, you know, probably bread and some vegetables and some roasting and maybe even meat or all these different things. And in comes this woman with this alabaster jar of ointment. Um, now, for those of you who were able to join us um, this afternoon at this sparking lot, um, you picked up a little, uh, wonderful, tiny little bag. And inside there is just the smallest little bit of um, spikenard oil that has that same sort of fragrance that they've kind of done their best to pull from the ancient Near Eastern practice and first century Judaism um, in in Israel. And if you even just don't even open it yet, if you just kind of smell it, um, it has this tiny little amount, has such a strong fragrance. Um, In fact, earlier today, Kevin, uh, our daughter was looking at some of it and Kevin said, hey, be careful because a tiny amount (laughs) will smell a lot. Um, This woman brings in some amount, whether it's very small or quite big, it's a part of an alabaster jar or box. We don't know if she's rich or poor, if this represents all of her wealth or just a small portion of it, but what she does with it is quite amazing. She stands behind Jesus at his feet, which again, picture that triclinium reclining sort of context, and then it says in the gospel that she stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to bathe his feet with her tears, to dry them with her hair, and she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. If you just take, if you have it or don't have it with you, whichever, just imagine the tiniest little bit of perfume sort of being spilled open and the entire room filling with a different smell than was there before. Her presence is known. 
her act of love and adoration is known. It cannot be ignored. It cannot be silently put aside of just, oh, that woman's doing that thing in the corner. Everyone will be smelling the difference of the setting in that moment. The meal and the focus of the meal has completely changed. So Jesus is reclining on this dining couch. This woman drenches her feet, like smears his feet with first with her tears, then with the ointment, and finally uses her hair to wipe his feet. And she continues just to kiss him, constantly just kissing him. And her hair is unbound, um, which can mean humility or mourning as an additional picture. Now, the Pharisees hosting this meal is watching this happen. And I can imagine, as the host, feeling a bit um, uncomfortable with the moment, right? Um, super intimate. Uh, I don't know if maybe some of you have ever been at a restaurant and seen somebody serenaded or say like that moment when somebody's like doing something so intimate um, and singing directly to you or giving you something that has just this, or maybe a foot washing service at a church. It is an intimate moment and it can feel so vulnerable and intimate that's a bit uncomfortable. And you're, you kind of don't know how to look. Um, that's what's happening in the middle of this meal. So when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this happening, he said to himself, so this is what he's thinking in his head, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him, that, that she's a sinner, right? Maybe he's thinking, of course she's making this ridiculous display. This is, this is of course, who she, she doesn't know right from wrong. So the Pharisee is engaging in this... In, Inter, eternal, internal monologue, right? That he's thinking to himself, so he's not saying it out loud. He might be too ashamed to speak openly as to what he really thinks of this woman's behavior, and that it's deeply uncomfortable for him. Um, and just as a quick note, I know we talked a few weeks ago about Pharisees and their role, and Jesus is most theologically aligned with Pharisees. So don't hear this in terms of somebody who is diametrically, diametrically opposed to Jesus entirely. Um, there's so much commonality here. It's just a super uncomfortable moment. And he's sitting thinking about this. Um, this is uncomfortable. And were Jesus really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. One wonders how the Pharisee knows um, what kind of woman this is. But that's okay. We can ask that at another question. So the text continues. Jesus spoke up and said to him, to the Pharisee, Simon, we now know his name, Shimon, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, just a quick note of fun, Shimon, Simon, is connected to the word in Hebrew for here, like Shema Israel, hear, O Israel. Um, so he's talking to somebody who needs to hear and learn. So he says, Shimon, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. And Jesus then does the thing Jesus does well, as well as all the other rabbis, once upon a time, right? He's going to pose a parable in order to teach a lesson, just like Nathan did for David in the Hebrew scriptures, and just like Jesus has done over and over again. Now, a parable in Hebrew, the word mashal, has a connotation of, you know, a almost like something, a container, um, something that you are going to teach a truth, but you know that if you just teach the truth straight out, the person won't be able to hold on to it. So the mashal with sort of handles on a basket or um, the rabbis liken the parable to um, putting handles on baskets so you can carry the truth or they liken the mashal, the parable to um, dipping a bucket of water deep down into a well so you can pull up the water to drink it or even sort of putting your ears on your head, something that can pick up your brain and tell you what you need to know. 
um, Rabbi Yossi talks about it this way. This other, you know, contemporary rabbi uh, a bit later than Jesus um, said, imagine a big basket full of fruit and vegetables, but without any handles so that it cannot be lifted until wise man comes and makes handles for it. Then it can be carried in the hands. That's what a parable does. And that's why Jesus starts with a parable for Simon, for Shimon. And he starts the story sort of once upon a time, a certain creditor had two debtors. He, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And just a quick note that a denarius, a Roman silver coin, was a standard daily wage. So the debts are not exorbitant, but neither are they inconsequential. So Jesus is saying, like, there's, there's a decent amount owed um, by both of these debtors. So a certain creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them, Jesus asks, will love him more? So just a quick note in Jesus's parable, neither debtor has the funds to pay and the creditor is going, it forgives the debt of both. The Greek li reads literally to both. He gave grace. So the creditor's action surprises because people who lend money from banks don't tend or like not just official loan officers, but like loan sharks, they don't tend, they're not inclined to let the debt go, right? They'll be out of business quickly. Um, so the response to such generosity would be, should be love. The issue becomes degree. Who will love him more? Both of them are going to love this lender, but who will love him more? And Shimon answers, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. The Greek literally for, I suppose, the one who canceled the greater debt is, I lift up that for whom the greater is forgiven. So that's his answer. The language of forgiveness can both apply here to both debt and sin, similar to when we say the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday, forgive us our sins or forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses. That connotation is pulled forth in all of it. So it kind of encompasses all of those debts. So then turning to the woman, so Jesus now facing the woman, but he says to Shimon, do you see this woman? Do you see her? Jesus is reclining on the dining couch, you'll remember. Simon is also reclining. The woman still kissing Jesus' feet and wiping his feet with her hair and still that fragrance filling up the entire room of the, of the myrrh, the spikenard oil. She's standing at the back of Jesus' dining couch. Simon would have to have lifted his head to see her, and that's exactly what Jesus wants him to do. Jesus turns to face the woman but continues to talk to Simon. He wants Simon to look at her. Do you see her? And you just have to sort of know that in Jesus' question, it's not, do you see that she's in the room? Do you see that she's arrived? But do you see her? And then Jesus says, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Jesus points out that the host, Shimon, has missed the opportunity that hospitality required. No water for the feet. She's drenched or rained on his, my feet with tears. No kiss, but she's not stopped kissing me. From washing to kissing to anointing, this woman, this woman known as a sinner, is the ultimate host in this dining setting. And so Jesus asks, do you see her? 
Do you see her? I'm reminded of Hagar in the book of Genesis who calls God, the God who sees me when she is at that well. Jesus sees this woman. Does Simon see her too? Do you see her? So Jesus then continues on. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Right? And, th and there's some righteousness there, right? Like, if you have not done terrible, horrible things, you're not as aware, I'm not as aware of our great need for a Savior, for redemption, for forgiveness, for restoration. Simon's probably a very ups, upright, amazing man, a wonderful leader in the community. And therefore, his debt is not as great. And so he does not love as well. Jesus then says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Jesus not only knows the woman's condition of sinner, but he also has the authority to forgive her. The woman's sins, which were many, have been forgiven, and her love is the response to that amazing gift. The love and forgiveness are intimately related. One prompts the other. Jesus speaks to the woman directly at this point. Your sins are forgiven, which is quite amazing, right? Because this outpouring of love and adoration and worship and perhaps humility and mourning all of this that she has poured out literally and figuratively and emotionally upon Jesus. Her sacrifice of this beautiful perfume and ointment that's now filling the entire room. All of this was done before Jesus made this proclamation, your sins are forgiven. She loves much because she knows who he is and, and what he can do for her. And maybe they've had an encounter before, we don't know. But at this moment, she is given what she's longing for, full and complete restoration and forgiveness. The story continues on. There were those who were at the table, and they began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Who is this that forgives sins? Does the woman deserve to be forgiven? I think that's what they're asking, like, how dare he do this? And maybe she's not made restitu restitution. Maybe she's not gone and make right. Like, why does he have authority to forgive her? But that's the wrong question to ask. It's not a matter of merit, right? Christianity, um, the grace that Jesus lives in, um, our faith here does not give us forgiveness based upon our merit, based upon our actions, based upon the fact that we've made it right and therefore we will be forgiven by God. All of us sin and fall short of God's highest and best for us. We can never earn or deserve God's forgiveness. Forgiveness is about grace, God's unmerited favor. And the woman in the story is likely emotional because she knows that she has not merited the forgiveness that she receives. People aren't usually grateful when they get what they think they deserve. They're grateful when they receive grace, when they receive what they know they do not deserve full restoration and healing and forgiveness. So Jesus says to the woman, your faith, your trust, your faithfulness, your persistent faithfulness here has saved you. Go in peace. She demonstrates that faith and trust that Jesus will grant her that forgiveness, even if others don't. And this allows her to go in shalom, to go in peace. 
Luke's focus is on the amazing generosity of the woman's behavior, signaling the extent of her gratitude for the forgiveness granted to her. It reminds me of the verse we studied just a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 5, verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, Jesus says, but sinners to repentance, right? She knows she is in need of a new beginning, of new life, of a resurrection, of, of a chance to do something new and great and beautiful. She needs, desperately needs this forgiveness. So her repentance and her gratitude for that forgiveness is on display for everyone to see. And just as God is forgiving, so we should be forgiving too. This picture, this beautiful woman who forgives, who experiences this forgiveness, and and even before that moment just showers upon her love and adoration and her, her repentance upon Jesus. Um, walks into this room and changes the entire meal, right? Nobody's going to be talking about Simon's great food anymore. They're all going to be talking about this woman and this act of what has happened in this moment. That one who is forgiven much, loves much. And we know the power of this. We know the power of this love that Jesus gives this woman and this love that she pours out for Jesus has changed and shifted not just everything in the room but but everything in Simon's heart and everything in the hearts of everybody else who's around and it it changed the world this love that Jesus puts on display that provides this type of forgiveness and new hope it changes everything we're going back to um, Bishop Michael Curry at that wonderful wedding sermon Um, and if you have not listened to his sermon at that wedding I highly recommend that you go and he has a new book out and well, it's well-deserved to pay attention to his teachings. He says this um, in that wedding sermon. Think and imagine a world when love is the way. Because when love is the way, we actually treat each other like we are actually family. He's like describing this scene, right? When love is the way, we know that God is the source of all, and we are brothers and sisters, children of God. My brothers and sisters, that's a new heaven and a new earth, a new world, a new human family. Love is powerful, and it changes everything. And we're still telling the story of this woman and her beautiful act of anointing Jesus and pouring out her heart because it showed and put on display her great love in response to me being forgiven so much or in hope of that or just because of who Jesus is, that this changed everything in this moment. We see here that in Christ, Jesus sees us, that we are seen as we are broken, shattered, ashamed, embarrassed for things that we've done or not done. And we come to Christ and pour out our love for him, pour out our adoration for him, and he sees us. And in response to being seen, my prayer is that we will love much. And if you have this um, spikenard ointment oil and you want to take a whiff either through the bag where it sort of was wafting out or or open it up. Can you smell that fragrance that she poured out in that room? And for those of you watching who don't have the smell with you, um, 
I hope you you can find something that just brings that beautiful fragrance, a spice, a smell, something that would shape and shift that room. She's seen. And in response, she loves much. We are seen. May we love much. We are welcomed at the table. May we love much. We are included in this Jesus story and in this movement, in this kingdom. May we love much. We are forgiven. May we love much. We are loved by the Savior and Creator of the universe. We are loved as we are, not as we should be, exactly in the moment, fully seen, fully known. We are loved. May we love much. And let's proceed then in our table fellowship, all here at the table, with the fragrance of her offering, with your grape juice or your wine and your crackers or bread. We gather every week. We celebrate the Lord's Supper because of this table fellowship where we are welcomed and we are known and we are loved and we are seen and we are forgiven. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.